Hello, everyone. Welcome to Disability Inc. Include NYC's podcast series. My name is Jean Mizutani, Senior Education Specialist here at Include NYC. And today I am excited to share the distinctly New York story of how a chance street corner conversation between two NYPD cops changed one man's professional and personal trajectory. That man is Donnie Swanson, a beloved New York City educator who was born with a disability at a time when disabled children were all but written off. To set the stage, medical professionals had recently advised his parents to put their young son in an institution and were warned to avoid getting attached to him. This could not have been far from his father's thoughts, a police officer, as he walked his Brooklyn beat that day. I'm so pleased to introduce Donnie Swanson to share the rest of this amazing story. Welcome, Donnie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Tell us about yourself, Donnie. Okay, so I was born in 1980 um, with a disability known as cerebral palsy. Uh, this was approximately 10 years before the American Disabilities Act. So um, the disability itself and supports for the disabled community weren't at the forefront at this time. Um, my parents, I am the third uh, child. So um, having a child with a disability was new to them and definitely exploring some uncharted territory at this point. So they were not exactly sure you know, what was the best approach to support me. Um, I do recall even my mother telling me that her first thought was to go to her dad and ask him what his thoughts were. And at the time, you know, he said, I, you know, do, do what the doctors say, uh, they know best. And I'm lucky that my parents did challenge the norm because from what I hear, I would have been environmentally disabled at that point due to some of the challenge, or I'd say some of the methods that were used to support students with this, or I should say individuals with disabilities at that time. Yeah, or to not support one could say. Yes, yeah. So um, I, I recall that, you know, my mom was telling me to, you know, just when I was first getting, uh, or I should say when I was first dealing with the times of when I was born to not necessarily stress what I was doing, just try your best. Uh, to that point, it then turned into, um, don't tell anybody about your disability. If anybody asks, you just have a problem with your leg. Uh, but it was much more involved than that. Those were the norms of the day. And you know, it's truly unimaginable. It's just only 40 years has passed, but this type of advice was still common at that time. And to think that two authority figures, both the doctor and your grandfather, had advised your parents to institutionalize you. I know that they used to refer to it as a home, but we know the reality of what those homes were like now. And we can only imagine how hard it must have been for your parents you know, to process the information and to even grapple, even consider such a decision, it's, it's really hard to believe. But it was during this time that a chance meeting occurred. Tell us about that. 
so having spoke to my father about um, my past, he recalled a specific conversation on McDonald's Avenue and 18th Avenue in Brooklyn, where uh, he was walking his beat in his uniform and Matty Ferrigno, Lou Ferrigno's father, uh, at that time a retired lieutenant, uh, came over to say hello. And we're talking. And when um, Mr. Ferrigno introduced himself to my father and said that he is Lou's, Lou's father, uh, my father recalled and he knew exactly who he was because he was a well-known celebrity, uh, a great bodybuilder, and uh, you know, just an all-around TV star. I recall, you know, he was the uh, Incredible Hulk. That was his, uh, right. <laughs> you know, that was his um, character. But my father told uh, Mr. Ferrigno that he and his son used to work out together in a gym called R&J Health Studio. And actually they, they filmed a movie about Lou Ferrigno there called Pumping Iron. Uh, so, you know, through talking, you know, my father had brought up the fact that of Lou's past that he had uh, some challenges around hearing loss uh, as a toddler and how Mr. Ferrigno, Maddie's father, helped his son overcome that through the support of hearing aids and later on in life through a, uh, you know, I believe uh, Lou had gotten a cochlear implant to support his hearing loss as well. But, uh, you know, just the thought or hearing from another family, another support that they were able to challenge the norm and not necessarily listen to the doctors or to others when they felt in their heart that their son or their child could do more. And that's exactly what my father needed to hear. Because when I had asked my father, you know, what made you challenge that? He told me, I just knew you could do it. I, I just know my son. Something that makes me feel very proud to hear and never want to let him down. So uh, when doing that, you know, that's something I always have in the back of my head. And it helped me develop my own growth mindset. Uh, you know, my father has always taught me and always pushed me to um, take whatever item I wanted to do or any challenge that I wanted and overcome it, even when um, the process wasn't as easy as my neurotypical peers. So, for example, um, when riding on a bike, I had my foot was turned in. So having to utilize the pedal uh, with one leg, it kept falling off and it was a difficult time but he never allowed me to give up. And, you know, that was something I needed in my life to show me that I was able to do things that people did believe in me because I could have went in a different trajectory just from that alone and given up. You sure, you sure could have, you sure could have. I believe that when we first spoke, you mentioned to me that your father had confided in Maddie Ferrigno what the doctor had recommended for you. Yes. And, yeah. And his Maddie's response is the response that really changed everything. Do you remember? Um, well, my father had told me that that response was to, you know, if you know in your heart that your son could do more then challenge the norms, even when professional advice uh, tells you to do otherwise. And that's all my father needed to hear. Yep. That's all he needed to hear. And I'll tell you, if I was in a situation like that, confiding in somebody else, and they said to me, the doctor told my family that too. I would flip out because I'd really think they really understand of all the people that I could be talking to right now. 
this is the one individual that can really understand. And from there, it was challenge it if you believe in your heart. So, wow, you, you said that that conversation changed the whole trajectory of your life. And you started telling us a little bit about that a moment ago. Please continue. Yeah, so it started with the bicycle because I always wanted to be like my neurotypical brothers. They're five and six years older and as well as my peers. Um, you know, uh, I just wanted to be like everybody else. Uh, and when growing up, I couldn't understand why me, why did I have a disability? What did I do wrong? And my parents always made me realize I didn't do anything wrong. This was given to me. And one day that I would truly understand why this gift was given to me, I didn't think of it as a gift. Wow. I saw it as a challenge, but my parents always explained to me that this was a gift and that you one day will figure out why. And, oh. uh, you know, from the, the bicycle then went to baseball. My brothers were both uh, all-stars in Central Little League in Staten Island and then went on to high school. My brother, I recall my brother Keith won the city championship uh, for Tottenville High School in Staten Island, you know, um, a competition across uh, New York City uh, for baseball. And I always wanted to be just like them. And I wanted to play baseball. So when it was my turn to do so, my father didn't want to hold me back. There was a pitcher for the USA team, uh, for the baseball team, and then became a professional baseball pitcher uh, for the New York Yankees. His name was Jim Abbott. He had one arm uh, and was a pitcher that used to hold his glove on, on one hand, or I should say up against his chest uh, as he threw the ball. And then he would put his glove on that same hand and catch when it was time to field. My father used that model and taught me how to quickly transfer the glove and I was able to, you know, participate and be able to be part of the, uh, the, the Little League. Uh, matter of fact, I do recall, and it was something, my mother, I just make you laugh a little bit, but my mother at one point was have, uh, had a, uh, a procedure done in the hospital. She found out that I was throwing a no-hitter in Little League. When I, I want to say I was maybe 11 or 12 years old uh, in doing so. She signed herself out of the hospital, ran down to the baseball field. My brother's um, coach, his name was um, Mr. Tierney. He came to see me. And when the game was over, they gave me a, a Tottenville baseball hat. I still have it, you know, the, just to see the sense of community and support. That isn't always the case. And I'm very lucky to have such a great support. Wow. Well, with each success, you're motivated to do the next thing. So what was next? Um, well, I uh, just in terms of like some other items, I wanted to then transfer that into working. I tried to work in a pizzeria and <laughs> I wound up burning my hand very bad. And uh, my mother did seek supports for me and I was able to get supports as I was going through school because the fear was that I wasn't going to be able to work. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do for my career because of my disability and how it would hold me back. Uh, even doing so, you know, and I mentioned this before, I was always told to not let people know what my disability was, to hold it in. Don't let them know because they're going to treat me differently. And I did see that happen. When I was in school and I did alert my gym teacher that I had cerebral palsy, I was told to sit down um, because he was afraid that I was going to get hurt. Uh, and, you know, I got I to gotta thank my parents because I never took no for an answer. 
I had to show people. I would constantly try to prove myself and just to be part of the community. I wouldn't accept no uh, when I knew I could do more. And that was that, that, um, that sense of you know, community that my parents instilled in me that if you think you can, you will. Well, and I always keep that with me today. Yeah, innately, I think you do believe that. I think you were born with that between you and me, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, did, you have, did you have surgery? Were there any corrections? I did. Um, I had to wait until I was 16 years old till my growth plate closed in my leg uh, to actually have my tibia and fibia fused. That's my shin and um, calf, the bone right there. Uh, I have it fused to my ankle. Um, I had to take about nine months in bed for it to heal. Uh, so that was a very challenging time in my life as well. I had to take my regents at home uh, while I was oh. my leg up in the air. Oh my. Uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite challenging, but we did overcome that as well. Uh, over time, I think I've might have given my parents uh, quite a scare because as I got used to having the cast and realizing that the walker was getting me to place to uh, getting me places a little slow. Uh, I decided to hop across the floor and, you know, oh. just continue to do different things because that was my personality. And you know what? I felt comfortable. I got used to it and I'll overcome it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you used the computer when you were in bed recovering from that surgery, didn't you? It was a long recovery. Yeah. So uh, I'll make you laugh with that story as well, if I may. Um, I wound up using the computer uh, and, you know, somebody new to the computer, you always hear that it crashed. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. I don't know how this happened. Uh, that happened about three or four times. So my parents were like, that's it. I'm not bringing the computer back anymore. Either you fix it or it's going in the garbage. Mm -hmm. So that actually set me on another path because I wound up fixing the computer and learning how to do that. And uh, that's actually what pursued that. That was that uh, inclining inclination uh, of, hey, I love computers. I I'm going to go to school for computers. And that's what I did in college. I, I pursued a degree in networking and programming from St. John's University. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's very funny because certain things happen in your life and you don't realize them until afterwards. So even when working on the computer and realizing, you know, how to fix them and how to, how to connect them to a network and program them in order to work uh, and connect to other items. I was like, this is great. I would, I could do this for the rest of my life. And uh, that's, that, that set me on my path when I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do in high school. It was a so, good initial goal. Wonderful. Yeah. But today, <laughs> look at now, Donnie, you are the principal of Pathways to Graduation in Staten Island, New York, which is within the New York City Department of Ed. And we know Pathways is a unique program because it supports students who were previously unsuccessful in other schools. So it is a pivotal time for them educationally. How did you get there from computer science? Um, so when I went to St. John's University and I um, pursued a degree in the, in the computers, uh, computer science, I wound up working in, a, in the computer field without doing work-based learning. Uh, I didn't do any internships or anything along those lines. I just applied for the job. 
And I'm going to be upfront with you, even as much as I loved computers, when I got there, I said, wait a minute, I can't sit behind a desk for the, for the whole day. This is not for me. So I, uh, I, I wound up getting more and more. Um, actually, I, if I could step back, I, I got involved in, in my college as much as possible. And making those, those key connections, I was able to connect with a lot of different um, professionals in the field for the college. And I wound up becoming the student body president for the freshman year. Uh, and again for sophomore, but by then I wanted to challenge that and I wound up becoming the uh, student body president for the university overall uh, in my junior and senior year. Wow. Um, so when I got to the job and realized, hey, I don't necessarily like this, I called up my dean at the time from the college and I said, you know what, I may want to come back to college. He said, I have a great opportunity for you. He goes, why don't you become a grad assistant? because I had mentioned I wanted to get into the field of education because I love to tutor. Uh, and he said, I'll pay for your master's degree and you come work for us. Whoa. So that was tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> that was tremendous because I, I didn't necessarily have the funds to, you know, go on to a master's degree when I didn't have a job to pay for my undergrad. Uh, so, you know, just important, just an important fact about my, uh, my support, and my social, um, well-being as well. Uh, so I did that. When I got my first job, I wound up going into IS-75 in Huguenot in Staten Island. It's a middle school. And I wound up teaching academic interventions mathematics for students that were, um, excuse the term, but promotion and doubt, that were having difficulty um, in that subject area. That was your uh, first job in education? That was, yes. That was your old school, your old middle school. That's correct. That's where I went to school as a child as well. And, you know, that's typical that most educators will go back to the schools in which they know. Uh, at the time, there was a new principal there uh, who just started, and I didn't necessarily know him specifically. His name was Mark Canizaro. Uh, I'm so glad that I met him too, and I'll tell you that in a moment. But my oldest uh, assistant principal was still there. His name was Mark Herman, and he was one of the references for me as I began to sub there. And uh, I was hired full time from subbing. Um, from that point, I realized how important it was for, you know, students to have a different, um, or I should say, to provide a, a different way of learning for all students. That not one way of learning or catering to different learning styles was key. And uh, from the math program, my principal at the time gave me the opportunity to develop my own program called Lego Robotics. And I was able to provide math concepts through an inquiry-based learning where students were hands-on. And it not only did math concepts, but it connected the uh, computers, uh, computer, you know, basic programming. Uh, at the time, I want to call it GUI-based, and that's graphic user interface uh, for those that are unfamiliar with um, programming. But it was the beginning stages of programming for students. So I absolutely loved it. And uh, I still, to this day, I have conversations with that principal, with Mark. Uh, Canizaro and I said, I don't know how you did that with only two or three years of me being within the system. You gave me the opportunity to write my own curriculum and start my own course. Uh, to, you know, and I cannot thank him enough. We wound up doing that. And from that program, we developed a robotics team and competed in the first Lego League. And that stands for for inspiration and recognition of science and technology. Ooh. And uh, it was an international tournament. But um, we wound up competing against all the middle schools in New York City, uh, as well as the freshman year high school, because it went from nine years old to 14 years old. Uh, 
And uh, we wound up winning. And we represented the United States in an international tournament oh against God. 110 teams from 35 different countries. What an and experience. We, yeah, we were able to bring 30 students to Atlanta, Georgia. Wow. Uh, that in itself was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an amazing, amazing time to be on the 50-yard line in the Georgia Dome, uh, having everybody compete, and just an experience that I'll always take away. Uh, you know, take with me as I move on to my next step in my next career. Um, but from there, I was asked to, or actually I, um, I accepted a position to serve as an assistant principal for students with disabilities in District 75. Mm. Uh, District 75 is a program that supports uh, students with disabilities in a separate environment. Um, and it's inclusive to all different types of disabilities. It doesn't necessarily mean that the student has to be alternate assessment where they're not graded and receive a diploma, but there is um, a world of options. And I believe that that is actually um, their, their motto. Uh, so I was overseeing alternate assessment students ages 14 to 21 who are not necessarily on track for a diploma, but to provide um, vocational training as well as opportunities um, to pursue different domains of transition planning. So we went towards career and personal goals for this. They did have some post-secondary programs as well, but they were not on the matriculated level. So we were in preparation to do so. And I absolutely loved this program. Uh, and uh, as uh, six years within that role as an assistant principal, I was asked to then pursue or serve as a instructional specialist for the central office special education or the, the central special education office at the New York City Department of Education under the leadership of Christina Foti. Uh, and that helped me focus on not just students um, within District 75, but inclusive to all students um, within the borough of Staten Island. Mm -hmm. And I was across all districts that, that take place here on Staten Island. Uh, so with that said, we did focus on the three domains of transition planning. And I've come to realize you know, that the community plays such an important part in our students' education. Um, I even recall one of my old professors uh, who is now the chief operating officer at the uh, Staten Island Hilton Garden Inn. Her name is Christina Galisi. Uh, and I still keep in contact with her, but there was something she said to me that really resonated with me. And that was that um, your network is your net worth. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, this makes a lot of sense now within that role because it made me realize that it takes a community to do this work. You can't do it alone. And the importance of bringing in those opportunities, even for like myself, when I didn't necessarily do an internship in my program and didn't necessarily like the position that I was in for computers. So giving that opportunity and um, just connecting uh, to support our youth is key in, in, their, in their next steps, in their career, in their life. So that's something that always stayed with me uh, in order to go there. And then um, from there, uh, there was, I absolutely love supporting the schools. I worked with transition team leaders who specifically worked on this type of work within each school, um, as well as the administration teams. But there was one thing that as time went on and it was more interaction with the kids that I was missing. 
I wound up doing uh, a presentation with the superintendent from uh, District 79, which you had mentioned before, supports students with alternative learning environments, um, some of which are overage and undercredited at that point. Mm -hmm. And his name was Superintendent Bob Zweig. And when he was speaking, I absolutely was captivated by all the options and available, uh, um, all the different options and supports that were available within District 79. And he was talking about the different programs uh, that were taking place, one specifically being Pathways to Graduation. Uh, and when the opportunity came about, I applied to, um, I applied to the position to serve as principal. And here I am today serving uh, with an amazing team of like-minded people with a growth mindset that won't accept students to hear that I'm not good enough or I can't do this. This is another alternative pathway. This is not less. And that's something that I'm helping to um, uh, some of our other uh, neighboring schools learn that a high school equivalency diploma is not less than a regular diploma. It's just an alternative pathway. Um, at Pathways to Graduation, we're able to take the students' regents credits and connect them towards the GED exam, which is the, again, the high school equivalency that students will use, but they provide flexible schedules so that um, a student will never, you know, if there is a barrier between work or family, they have other opportunities in order to succeed. Uh, there's multiple locations as well as day and evening courses, but it's just so much more than just preparation for the HSE program because there's college and career services, there is workforce development internships, even other programs are able to connect with this. So if uh, um, one of our students, and I probably should have mentioned this before, but the students in which we serve are 18 to 21 years old, mm -hmm. um, that if they have a family of their own, there is a life program which we can provide daycare for their child while they go to school. Um, we are in connection with another program called Co-op Tech, which provides trades, uh, you know, skill sets towards trades as well. So they're able to be duly enrolled. And even for our undocumented students, we have immigrant uh, services and legal support. And there's so much more. The, the, the real uh, piece that really captivated me around Pathways to Graduation is it's the care for the students beyond the walls of the school building. And that's really what, um, it just spoke to every core value I have as an educator. And I said, I have to be part of this. This is such an amazing program. And I'm lucky enough that I, I did get the opportunity to do so. It's amazing. Every time you talk about it, the joy just radiates off you. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. always fun. it's always fun. And you know, it occurs to me that your life and what you're doing at Pathways, it, there's like a parallel track there because you sought to find alternative ways to participate. You found them. You're a full participant. In fact, I venture to say you participate more fully than many people that I know. But it's the same with the kids, correct? There are issues interfering with their education. And here comes Pathways with all these alternatives. Yeah, and that's, that's really, that's the premise around it, you know, that, you know, it's not less, it's just an, another alternative. There are barriers within life that sometimes we could not change. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't adapt and we can't be flexible to still meet our goals. Um, one thing that I always, you know, had in mind specifically around having a disability is there's no one right, right way to do something. Um, you can find an alternative pathway to completing a certain task or doing a certain job. So the same holds true for our students. 
yeah. and we'll be able to meet them halfway. Yeah. Well, the word ableism refers to attitudes in society that devalue and limit the potential of people with disabilities. I think society is a little more aware of the concept of ableism now, but we still have a long way to go. What advice would you give to professionals, young people with disabilities and their families? Um, if I could start with the professionals, um, whether they have uh, those that are working with individuals with disabilities, I would, you know, just to say, don't judge a book by its cover. Um, a disability in self has different variations. We're not just a character. Uh, we're not just a specific category within a certain disability. Uh, and we are so much more. So be open, be willing to hear more because, you know, we may be able to simplify a task because I do feel that um, uh, individuals with disability are some of our most creative minds because they're constantly thinking on how to um, find an alternative way to complete a task that would be different to their neurotypical peers. So um, let's just take Temple Grandin for um, an example. I mean, she completely revolutionized the, uh, the, um, uh, the slaughterhouse um, approach with our cows and things along those lines. And that now has become a norm when before it wasn't specifically like that. You know, just being open and willing to hear uh, or not be so quick to judge someone because of their physical um, or cognitive delay. They do have a lot to offer. Our, our uh, disabled community has so much to offer. But for our disabled community, I do want to just explain to you to challenge the norms. It, what lies here at, you know, in, in your core, your self-determination, you know what you can do. Don't let anyone hold you back. Uh, if, they sh if you're not able to complete a certain task as somebody else, that doesn't mean you can't compete it. You can't complete it. You know, or you will find a way to do so. And that may turn out to be something that you can share with others, just as I'm doing today. Uh, and somebody can grow from your story or from your certain process and continue to, to, to be more, be, uh, to take it from there. Uh, the sky's the limit, you know, with technology here today. I mean, we have so many opportunities now um, to participate where we didn't before. Wow. So don't let anybody hold you back. I think that's exciting. I think the future is actually pretty exciting. You know, I'm just wondering, just in case Lou Ferrigno is listening in now, is there anything that you'd like to say to him? I... Um... I mean, on a personal level, it has always been my dream to meet him, to say thank you. Uh, I've tried to contact him on Facebook. I've tried to connect with him um, um, for quite some time now. And I get it. Don't get me wrong. I'm a 41-year-old adult uh, with two children. I'm not going to be a priority. But just to, just to say thank you, because he has changed my life, whether he realizes it or not. Because, And that's the reason that I agreed to do this um, this interview because you know you never realize what could or who's going to listen in and who's going to then uh change their story so i just to say thank you for what you did for me because i wouldn't be here without you that one conversation that your father had with my father based on your story has changed my entire life 
And I'm so thankful. It's a beautiful thing. And it's extra beautiful that you're giving back in the same way. You've been a lucky guy, Donnie, but I see you're making a lot of our kids lucky guys and gals. So I thank you for that. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been such a, a treat, a thrill. It's been my pleasure. And anything I could ever do, uh, including my C, is you know, the epitome of what my father needed, uh, just to, if I may, because having the opportunity to connect with other parents and have the resources for, student, um, for families with disabilities is key, as you've seen from my story. Thank you again. Have a That's great day. Now. See everybody soon next time on Disability Inc.